G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision. Our special guest today, Elizabeth Kendall, is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. Elizabeth is a former principal researcher for the World Evangelical Alliance Religious Liberty Commission. She's also an adjunct research fellow at the Arthur Jeffrey Centre for the Study of Islam at Melbourne School of Theology. Elizabeth Kendall, a special welcome back to 2020. And thanks for having me, Neil. Elizabeth, uh, let's start with overall impressions and the developments that you've been watching in media. We perhaps have all been looking and seeing the developments that have been going in the Middle East, uh, Israel versus Hamas in war. Uh, what are your overall impressions? Ah, yes, it's absolutely uh, horrendous and shocking. I, I agree wholeheartedly with uh, those who have stated this is Israel's 9-11. This, this will change everything, I think, in, in uh, the Middle East. And um, it is Israel's 9-11. They have never experienced anything quite like this with uh, like 900 dead, I think, in the first uh, like 24 to 48 hours, something like 5,000 rockets, I think it was, in, in, in a matter of hours. This is coming from a little statelet that can't, uh, can't afford to feed its own people or uh, provide, you know, uh, proper sanitation or jobs, but they can they can afford to build up an arsenal like this. So uh, it's been horrendous. And the, the taking of captives, that's been probably uh, the biggest uh, difference. The fact that inter Israeli intelligence just so phenomenally failed and that Israeli security just so phenomenally failed has uh, caused uh, probably a, a huge trauma right through Israeli society. What are your thoughts on the intelligence failure? Because Israel has been renowned, or at least the reputation has been, that they have a very, very strong and uh, very well-connected intelligence uh, apparatus, uh, Mossad, and uh, in fact connected, no doubt, uh, globally with all sorts of other intelligence agencies too. What are your thoughts on the fact that there has been a failure here? Oh, I just think it's, it's absolutely astonishing because, yes, Mossad's had this reputation for a long, long time of being a world leader, really, in uh, human intelligence especially. Um, I have heard that there's been a, a greater increased reliance on trying to develop artificial intelligence in their intelligence gathering. Um, sometimes the more intelligence you have, the more difficult it is actually to, to see through it all. So maybe that's been part of the problem. But, you know, MI6 never saw it, British intelligence, um, and the CIA never saw it coming. So, like, the world's leading intelligence organisations were essentially taken completely by surprise and uh, I think the fact that uh, it took uh, 
Israel security forces so long to respond was a real shock for everyone as well. Another intelligence agency called the Middle East Media Research Institute. Um, is there some sense in which they may have even foreseen such an event coming? Yes, now, uh, Memory, or the Middle East Media Research Institute, it's not so much an intelligence agency as it just monitors all um, oh, basically open source material in the Middle East. So... None of the stuff they're monitoring really is secret. It's just open source, Arab language, Persian language, um, media. And they analyse it, they put the pieces of the puzzle together and uh, they report on it. So they monitor uh, education material, for example, that's being taught in Palestinian schools. They monitor what's, what the Ayatollahs are saying in their speeches on, on Friday afternoons and things. So they monitor uh, all that. Now, they put out a piece on the 31st of August. Uh, it's written by Yigal Kamon, and it's Signs of Possible War in September, October. Uh, Memory Daily Brief, number 517. And they list a whole string of reasons why they believe war uh, could be imminent, Um Number one was growing number of provocations by Hezbollah on Israel's northern border, the adaptation in the West Bank of Gaza-style fighting methods. So uh, in the West Bank, they've been firing rockets, they've been building tunnels, um, the possibility of clashes at Alaska during the Jewish holidays, um, and that there have been increased threats of regional war, and it's in this article, I think, that you see the very first reference to meetings that were held in Lebanon. So this report, which is, as I said, dated the 31st of August, uh, talks about the axis of resistance gatherings in Lebanon, Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad meeting fortnightly to discuss an upcoming war. And uh, uh, the Wall Street Journal made reference to, to it just the other day, and people are trying to uh, verify if that's the case. Israel has not actually blamed Iran as yet because once they do, they'll have to respond, and that will, of course, change the situation again. So they'll be very slow in that regard. But here we see the very first reference to these meetings of the axis of resistance meeting in Lebanon to supposedly, allegedly, plan the upcoming war. So no one should have been taken by surprise, really. So the major attack from Gaza in the southwest of Israel, uh, but these reports that were coming from Hezbollah in the north, um, there's concern because there was a, a tradition where Hamas uh, was not friendly with Hezbollah, but that has, that's changed, and uh, they now are working together. You're calling it an axis here. How do you think the relationship between Hamas and Hezbollah may well develop into something even much more serious than we've seen these last few days? Well, actually, Hamas and Hezbollah have been allies for, for quite some time. This is something that is really not understood. So 
I deal with this actually in my book, After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East. So in the Middle East, you've got um, a, 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 um, a sectarian axis between the Sunnis and the Shias, and they're, they're hostile towards each other. They're existential enemies of each other, the Sunnis and the Shias. Within the Sunni camp, you've got pro and anti-Muslim Brotherhood groups. So Turkey and Qatar are pro-Muslim Brotherhood. Egypt and Saudi Arabia are anti-Muslim Brotherhood. But there's another axis as well, and that's the axis of resistance, which is led by Iran and is dominated by Shia, and it's the resistance against Israel and the American presence in the Middle East. And they regard Israel, uh, they say it's got nothing to do with religion or anti-Semitism. They say that Israel is um, the great Satan's uh, like proxy in the, in, here in the Middle East to, to be a problem in the middle of the Muslim Ummah, to prevent them from uh, coming together in unity. And so the axis of resistance led by Iran are all those Islamic powers and jihadist groups that want to see the elimination of Israel and American bases from the Middle East. And they are opposed to uh, the powers that are allied to Israel and America, Saudi, like Saudi Arabia. Egypt has a peace treaty with Israel. Jordan has a peace treaty with Israel. And they have bases. They have American bases. So it's these two groups are diametrically opposed to each other, and that cuts across the Sunni-Shia line. Hamas is an axis of resistance power, just like Palestinian Islamic Jihad and just like Al-Qaeda. Now, just for clarity, because I know these things are complex and uh, we're not going to get it any better for a, a, a description of what is going on other than from you, Elizabeth Kendall. When we talk about the Shias and the Sunnis, uh, many of our listeners might recognise that's been a very historic thing that goes back over a thousand years. If we're looking at those nations that are surrounding Israel now, and as you've mentioned, Iran, and you've mentioned the groups, uh, of course, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, um, the connections here, which ones are Shia and which ones are Sunni, because you're saying that the connection between Hezbollah and Hamas now actually bridges a divide between the two, which is a, a quite an historic development. So if you're thinking about those nations around Israel, for listeners who might not be so across all of this, how do you describe who's, with, who's on whose side? All the groups that want to eliminate Israel and kick America out of the Middle East are part of the axis of resistance. So the leader of that is Shiite-dominated Iran, but it, and and of course their their number one proxy is Hezbollah. They created Hezbollah, and but also in that same uh, axis of resistance are the Sunni resistance powers, resistance groups of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is aligned with Iran. Iran backs Al-Qaeda. Uh, Iran is against Islamic State because Islamic State is anti-Shia, but Iran 
uh, um, Al-Qaeda actually is aligned with Iran, and that's one of the big hot spots and sore points between Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. Okay, now just bear with uh, me while we're just, uh, just clarifying these things, and I think this is important for our understanding. Saudi Arabia and uh, sidling up, uh, cozying up with Israel has not been well received by this axis led by Iran. Uh, is there any insight here? Because we were hearing just yesterday the possibility that uh, some of this attack may come to disrupt the alliance between Israel and Saudi Arabia, uh, who would be in the Sunni camp. Uh, thoughts here from you, just clarifying how you see things? Uh, yes, yeah, so there's quite a few analysts who believe that this is one of the key reasons why the axis of resistance have been and led it and this in this particular attack by Hamas has moved at this particular point because Saudi Arabia is working through the process of normalization with Israel. Now the Saudi royal family is anti-Muslim Brotherhood and is very money orientated. I think I think Mohammed bin Salman and others in the Saudi royal ruling at, at the current present time are more interested in money than they are in Islamic purity. Uh, I often think they're probably uh, likely to find themselves getting assassinated. In fact, there was an assassination attempt on Mohammed bin Salman a few years ago, and he was shot inside the palace. So this will split uh, Saudis. I would suggest that the those who support a resistance position within Saudi Arabia well, probably it could, they could rise up against the Saudi royal family. That's quite possible. Elizabeth, while we've got this incursion into Israel, a declaration now of war with Hamas, uh, there's some suggestion this could be just the start of what could be called a multi-arena operation. What does that mean? Yes, well, on the 8th of October, a Hezbollah official, Hashem, Salab uh, gave a speech in Lebanon uh, um, and say, explaining, so this is the day after Hamas invaded the south, he said Operation Alaska Flood is just one manoeuvre in advance of a larger and multi-arena operation that will eliminate Israel. So, the, so I think we need to uh, understand that this uh, is just the probably or very possibly just the beginning. Like my first thoughts, I must admit, on the seventh of October was that uh, maybe Hamas Hamas's main interest was in grabbing hostages so that they could uh, do a prisoner swap. I mean, a, a number of years ago, they managed to get, I think it was a thousand Palestinian prisoners, so jihadists and criminals, released from Israeli jails in exchange for one Israeli soldier, Gilad Shalit. Uh, so by taking all these civilians, including young children, uh, their uh, mothers, grandmothers, a Holocaust survivor, the grandmother in a wheelchair is a Holocaust survivor, taking all these over 100 civilians, they're probably looking to almost empty Israel's jails of Palestinian jihadists and criminals. 
but I think actually when I when I read this speech, I think it could be much more than that. I think it's quite possible we might see multiple moves in the coming days or weeks, and it's quite possible that maybe all the pieces are in play so that if Israel, just say Israel was to, you know, determine that Tehran had a, had a leading role in this attack and say they launched a missile against one of their uh, military facilities or a nuclear facility, uh, we could see Hezbollah um, already in, in place uh, in various uh, places all around the world to make a response. Um, and we could also be maybe anticipating an escalation at the northern border. Maybe we could be anticipating an escalation um, within Israel in places like uh, Nazareth, where there's uh, always been quite uh, hostilities um, from the Arab, increasingly radicalised Arab population, and uh, various West Bank uh, places where I think we could see uh, maybe an escalation. Maybe it's already planned in advance, and it's just going to be slowly rolled out. I think I, I found I found that really a disturbing insight. We're taking calls 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Anne is in Labrador in Queensland. Hi, Anne. Welcome along. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for what you're explaining. And I know it's terrible what happened and what is happening. How has this looked from a biblical perspective um, to Israel? Because I remember when we're saying, look at Israel, and you'll see, you know, um, from there, um, what about Jesus coming back and everything else. And and so and also from Matthew 24 when he says there'll be rumours of wars and stuff happening. So I just want to know from the biblical perspective how this is planning out. I know what happened is terrible and the, and, and, and the hostages and things like that. Uh, good thoughts there, Anne. Uh, your thoughts here, Elizabeth? Uh, look, I, I just I, that's that whole area of like end time prophecy and um, and everything is something that I don't get into very much. Uh, it's not really what what, what I do. I'm uh, you know the wars and rumors of wars have occurred uh, all through history, uh, even even in the very first century after the ascension of Christ, the early church felt that the situation was so bad that Christ must be about to return any minute now. And, you know, the Apostle Paul had to write and encourage them to persevere. Um, uh, I think Christians in every single age have anticipated the imminent return of the Lord. And I think what's important for us is to know that the Lord is going to return. And uh, until that day, there will be sin in the world, uh, greed and hatred and false religion and lies. The father of lies, the devil, will be out there trying to wreak havoc everywhere and to destroy the image of God in the world. And uh, the church has, it, its responsibility remains the same, to pray and to spread the word that Jesus saves and transforms and to spread the gospel of peace. Uh, Anne, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation. And uh, interesting because uh, people are not always ready to hear that uh, this is not necessarily for you, an eschatological 
uh, way of looking at the end of the age, but uh, there are some very pressing things that ought to be capturing our imagination, and that is that as the world changes and as all sorts of scenarios develop, there are Christians who are at risk. So taking the gospel to the whole world uh, can be upset by the issues that develop around persecution. So, uh, But 1-800-316-316, you might have your own thought to offer here. Uh, the danger in Israel and Gaza, death and destruction, uh, the fault of really this axis of uh, the ones that we're talking about here. Um, what about the international community and any ways that they're supporting? I mean, it's, it's one thing to talk about Shias and that axis, but what about the international community and and the fact that so many have in, you know, simply endorsed these sorts of actions that have led to terror? Yes, I mean, even the, the Pakistani government has, has come out in support of Hamas and, and you sort of, you just sort of, worry about the Christian, I worry about the Christian community in countries like Pakistan and and Iraq, where uh, Arabs have come out to to rally in support of the Palestinians who, I mean, this was the most horrendous uh, and barbaric um, uh, attack. I mean, not even just the fact that they launched thousands of rockets into, you know, civilian residential areas. They they just they went door to door, uh, just taking mothers with their children, and uh, they slaughtered people in their cars. So I think they I think they've gathered up something like two hundred and sixty bodies of young people from that from that music festival. It's you know it's really interesting. I can't remember the name uh, of that group. There's a group in Israel. It's a volunteer civilian group that have made it their mission to make sure that no no physical remains of Jews or Israelis remain uh, on the road and in the dirt after a terrorist attack. So I think this group came to be during all those years before before Israel built the wall and they had like a bus blew up pretty well every week. And, you know, the police would come in, the ambulances would come in, and then I think this little group, this little brigade of, of Israelis uh, got together to make sure, it's almost unthinkable for us in Australia, that no body parts remained. No bits of flesh of Israeli children remained on the streets to be driven over by cars or trampled underfoot. So these civilians... They put on their little bits of high-vis and they go in on their hands and knees and they look for every little bit of finger, toe, flesh, hair, and they pick it all up. Well, they're still busy trying to find everything that's down in that, you know, where the, where the, where the young people were slaughtered down at that music festival. Apparently, as they tried to flee in their cars, uh, Hamas just came around and just slaughtered them. It's... To me, it was almost the same as things I was reading from 2014 when ISIS came into Mosul and people were trying to flee out of Mosul in their cars and ISIS came up in their white Toyota Hiluxes and just machine gunned through all the cars. And this is exactly what Hamas was doing down in southern Israel. And the thing that really bugs me is the degree to which 
left-wing in the West, the far left, like the real neo-Marxist radical left in the West, has become uh, really pro, pro-Palestinian to the point of being pro-terrorist almost. It's just appalling. I mean, I, I even heard someone in, in the, my own local church basically suggest that, oh, well, this is all Israel's fault. They've probably brought, you know, like it's a false flag or they've set it up so they can just go in and kill Palestine. I'm thinking, my, I can't believe it. We had to have a really good little talk. I, I just, and uh, apparently there have been Anglican ministers in Melbourne who have come out in favour of the Palestinians. And as we know, there was a, the police in Sydney allowed a pro-Palestinian uh a rally where people chanted gas the Jews, gas the Jews and the police, you know, allowed it to go ahead outside the opera house. Um, but imagine what it would be like to be a Christian uh, in Iraq when you've got this happening all around you and your government is supportive of it and you're just this little vulnerable minority and you know that once the Jews have been attacked, <laughs> it's next the Christians, you know. That's what after Saturday comes Sunday means. After the Jews, it'll be the Christians. And And that's something we might follow through on as well because there are some vulnerabilities, and particularly after last night's protest at the Sydney Opera House, that might cause everyone who is a Christian to actually be a little on edge uh, because of the way that was conducted. Um, Let's see if we can squeeze in another call before news. Judy is in Canberra. Hi, Judy. Oh, hi, Neil. Hi, Elizabeth. Judy, very quick, what's your thoughts? Well, I was just um, had a coffee with a friend um, who's a refugee from Syria, and I just found it interesting, the perspective that Israel is the aggressor and at fault. I, it's just beyond my comprehension. Where is that, that thinking coming from? I mean, you're speaking about that now almost. Uh, you know, I know from Scripture I'm to pray for peace in Jerusalem, I'm to support Israel, stand with them, which is what I do. And yet so many people don't look at it that way. No, people don't see it that way. Judy, a very quick thought here from Elizabeth. This is something we should pick up after the news because this is really, really, really important. So many Christians in the Middle East, in, 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 in Palestinian Christians, in Jordan, in Syria, they are deeply, deeply anti-Semitic to the point that it will shock you. And, of course, Western media goes to these Christians and gets their opinions and publishes them without understanding where it comes from. It comes from the fact that they are raised from the cradle to believe that Israel is the problem. Israel is all their problems, the problem of their poverty, their everything. Israel is the aggressor. It's not the Arabs' fault. They are also... Uh, they are raised in a state of dimitude. This is all tied up with dimitude. They are from from infancy. They know that the only way to survive is to hold these positions. Because if you, uh, Elizabeth Kendall, uh, chum, come back to just something we talked about just before the news, and then we'll take some calls. You mentioned a word that a lot of listeners might not be so familiar with. This word, dimitude. Uh, the thought that anyone who's not 
uh, an Islamic Muslim, uh, becomes something like a second-class citizen. How do you describe dimitude and what that looks like in the support that comes from those nations around Israel uh, teaming up against them? Well, dimitude, historically, when uh, Muslims uh, took over the uh, various countries or communities which were non-Muslim, they established themselves, uh, they established ruling powers over these uh, peoples. They gradually colonised uh, the peoples, but they set up what was known as the Dimmer Pact. So polytheists had, would be killed, right? They were, they were unacceptable and would be killed. Jews and Christians, who they identified as the people of the book, they could stay alive, right, because they... They usually were uh, educated, they were skilled, they were farmers, they turned oases, they created oases in the desert and, and the Muslims learned that if they wiped them all out, everything went back to desert. So they, they developed this system whereby they could stay alive and even keep their religion as long as they submitted to the rule of Islam and to Islamic norms. And the, the Dhimma Pact was a, an agreement, a covenant between the Islamic overlords and the subjugated Jewish and Christian peoples. So the Jews and the Christians, in order to stay alive and be allowed to keep their religious identity, and keep, had, to, had to become dhimmis. And dhimmis always had to be below the Muslims. So they weren't allowed to ride horses, they could only ride donkeys. If they came up against a Muslim who was walking, they'd have to get off their donkey and make sure their head was lower than the Muslim's head. Uh, their houses had to have lower roofs than the homes of Muslims. Their churches couldn't have crosses or steeples because they had to be below the height of the mosque, all this sort of stuff. They had no legal rights. So Muslims could kill Christians with impunity because Christians were not, and still are in Muslim countries, Islamic states, not allowed to take a Muslim to court, right? A Christian cannot challenge a Muslim in court according to Sharia law and the laws of dimitude. This means you are a sitting duck. It's just terrible. So what happens to the Christians and Muslim, uh, Christians in this situation is that they develop this uh, like a spirit of subjugation, a spirit of dimitude, and it's fear-driven. It is all about fear because the dimitude says you live as long as you submit and you don't break the covenant. As soon as you break the covenant, right, the dimmer pact, then jihad is to resume against you. And so holy war resumes and you can all be wiped out. So the Christians get used to living in a state of abject submission and fear. And that goes on generation after generation after generation. And that's the reason why Christians all through the Middle East, 99% of them will come across as being deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Because if you grow up in Gaza, if you grow up in Jordan, then that's the only way to survive. And it's the only thing you've ever learned. So and the, if you're a Christian, you'll be taught that you have to be that to survive. 
and uh, we're not under that regime in Australia and we can speak the truth and uh, hearing you uh, be able to articulate those things is a breath of fresh air, Elizabeth Kendall. So uh, the thought of the push to annihilate Israel Uh, It's really about this forced submission to Islam and uh, there would no doubt be some sort of dimmer pact uh, that would be a part of, uh, you know, the the Hamas or or the the axis uh, that we've been talking about, uh, bringing Israel under some level of submission. That's the goal of all of these people who are in the axis. Is that the case? Oh yes, absolutely. They would they would establish an Islamic state uh, that, across the Middle East, um, and uh, yes, and any any surviving a remnant of the Jews and Christians of the Middle East would be subjugated uh, under a Dimmer Pact. Okay. And um, for, like for me, one of the big I- oh sorry. Uh, that's all right. No, I've got uh, lots of calls that we'll try and get through and uh, just a short time. So let's take some calls and we'll get a brief response from uh, Elizabeth. Let's hear from Catherine in Esperance in the in Western Australia. Catherine, welcome along. Hello, Catherine. Are you with us? Catherine, uh, you might need to call us back. Uh, 1-800-316-316. Let's try Richard in Alstonville in New South Wales. Hi, Richard. Uh, g'day guys. Um, I had a question, or two questions actually. One, first of all, for Elizabeth. Um, going back to, I think it was two years ago when um, uh, President Trump was president of America and, and he made made the agreement to shift, I think it was the American embassy to Jerusalem um, or yep. somewhere around that. It was, it was a treaty or something with, I think, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was still prime minister in um, Israel, and then Australia also supporting that movement. Coming forward to, I think, was it earlier this year when when Anthony Albanese and our Foreign Minister Penny Wong pretty much isolated Israel in a way, and then the comments of the last couple of days with the with the Prime Minister. I mean, obviously supporting supporting. Um, Israeli people and people in Gaza. What's what is your thoughts on like? Because it's kind of confusing to me the whole situation. Who do, who do we take for their word on it? Or yeah. So uh, as I understand it, uh, Penny Wong has re- reversed a decision from the earlier uh, coalition government uh, about recognising uh, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and therefore uh, there's issues around embassies and such things. Elizabeth Kendall, have you got more light to shed on those things uh, that Richard is uh, talking about? Uh, not a real lot. I think it's almost a side issue. I think... Um uh, the issue of Jerusalem is really, really important. I mean, David made Jerusalem his capital in 1000 BC. The whole idea that it's not the capital of Jerusalem, not the capital of the state of Israel, is is sort of almost bizarre to me. When it was when the land was originally partitioned, um, uh, uh, Jerusalem was supposed to be a an international city, so there would be Jewish areas and um, Arab areas, and remember they were Arab areas, there's no such thing as a Palestinian at that time uh, idea of Palestinianism uh, really wasn't invented until about, I think it was after the Six Day War um, the Palest- Palestinians are Arabs they're all all Arabs but um, 
So uh, uh, now I've lost, my, I've lost my train of thought. Okay. But, um, so, uh, it's, so oh, that's right. it was around it was about meant to to be an international Trump. city. No, it was meant, Israel was meant to be an international city. And when, and when the state of Israel was declared and five Arab states all flooded in to, to wipe Israel off the map, the international community did nothing to defend uh, the, the city of Jerusalem. It was only Israel that defended the city of Jerusalem. And when Israel uh, regained access to the portions of Jerusalem it didn't have access to and to the Wailing Wall in 1967. Um, that was just, for them, the most amazing, uh, break, the breakthrough amazing, uh, imaginable. The images of Israeli soldiers arriving at the, at the Western Wall uh, in 1967 are some of the most moving images you'll, you'll ever see. Um, uh, you know, I regard Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. I think it's ridiculous to think otherwise. Okay, uh, Islam's let's... only claim is through a dream Muhammad had, um, and so they built a mosque there. But Okay, it. Richard in Alstonville, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316. Let's take uh, that call from Catherine in Esperance in WA. Catherine, what are your thoughts? Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Elizabeth. Thank you. We don't hear this on any other media outlet. I just wanted to speak about Gaza and that Ariel Sharon, with international pressure, will relinquish part of the promised land. And I feel that there's been no blessings and that I think Israel has to take back Gaza. And I know the international community will squeal, but I think it's a, a really time for battle and all of these forces are anti-God. And I just wanted to say that nothing will stop the plans and purposes of God. Good thoughts, Catherine. Uh, Elizabeth? Uh, yeah, no, that, that's really, really interesting because so Ariel Sharon pulled uh, Israeli troops out of Gaza in 2005 in basically a we withdraw in exchange for peace deal, sort of like a land for peace deal. But Gaza is still... Uh, it's still part of Israel. It's just that it's ruled by Hamas now, and that's because the Palestinians elected Hamas to rule over them in democratic elect elections. Um, and not long after doing that, uh, Ariel Sharon fell into a coma and was in a coma for over a decade, or about a decade. I only died a, a few years ago. But um, the fact that the fact that Oh, now when so when when they pulled the troops out, when all the troops left, the thing is that they had to pull out the Israelis, the Jewish civilians as well, because if the Israeli troops are not there, then Jewish civilians will die. That's just a fact of the matter. They will all be killed, and the Jew, and the Israeli government of Ariel Sharon convinced the Jews to leave behind their businesses, their farms, their hydroponic tomato places, you know, their greenhouses, in the hope that the Palestinians would pick them up and use them for their ep economic betterment. But they didn't. They were, all, uh, they were all left behind and then the Palestinians burnt them all. And the thing, so the thing that's really significant here is Gaza is not occupied. Gaza is not occupied. The Israeli troops left Gaza. All Jewish people have been taken out of Gaza. And what happened? It turned into a terror camp, a terror training base, 
and uh, from where terrorist attacks could be launched into Israel. So, and I think I think Israel will have to retake and reoccupy Gaza. I, I don't think there's any other way that they can do it. And this just shows why they cannot pull their troops out of out of the West Bank. It's just not possible. Catherine, thank you so much for your call. Let's take one more call because I don't want to miss the opportunity to get some more insights around the rally that was held in Sydney last night at the Opera House. But let's take one more call. Val is in Mackay. Hello, Val. Welcome. Oh, hi. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. Uh, This is all... Uh, I think we have lost Val. Val, you might like to call us back. Uh, 1-800-316-316, something happened. Uh, Val has just dropped out. Uh, 1-800-316-316. And we'll take that call from Val if she calls back. Hey, coming to last night's rally in Sydney, uh, and the interesting thing is here, of course, uh, we're concerned about Jewish people and uh, those reports that people who are carrying Israeli flags were actually arrested and uh, those who were protesting and uh, standing uh, in uh, in solidarity with uh, with the Islamists uh, were allowed to have their demonstration. Um, you said something a little earlier, Elizabeth. There actually is a danger to Christians uh, where Hamas attacks are being celebrated, and it's almost as though here on our Australian television screens and in our prominent places, uh, we've got a celebration of Hamas. Uh, what are your thoughts about last night's demonstration? Uh, yes, uh, I'm not particularly worried about attacks on Christians in, in Australia. I think we need to be concerned about attacks on synagogues and Jewish people in Australia. I think that's a very real possibility. I think uh, security will probably have to be beefed up in those situations. I'm very concerned about Christians in countries like uh, Pakistan and, and Iraq especially. I'm also concerned about very vulnerable Christians whose lives are at risk uh, and and that the, the whole war in the Middle East might create a smokescreen uh, under which horrible atrocities can be committed uh, without people looking. Like everyone's going to be understandably attracted to what could be an expanding, accelerating, almost heading for World War Three type situation in the Middle East, and that would be a perfect opportunity for maybe a hostile regime or hostile elements maybe to just eliminate some inconvenient peoples, like the Assyrians of northern Iraq, like the Papuans of eastern Indonesia, like the, um, or even in Burma, for the Burmese uh, military to escalate its military violence against the Christian Chin and the Kachin and the Karen people of Burma. Because everyone's attention will be elsewhere and this other conflict will just take take all the oxygen and i would think it would be a perfect opportunity for or even for azerbaijan and turkey to advance uh through the caucasus um so i think there are a lot of people who are very very vulnerable right now simply because the eyes of the world will not will not be on them and no one will have time for their for their problems let's take that call from val in Mackay. hi val Hi, I'll try not to drop out this time. (laughs) Uh, I just wanted to comment that this is all part of a much, much bigger picture. 
the Bible is about the inheritance and who possesses the inheritance. And God gave Abraham uh, physical descendants, the land of Canaan, which is Israel, and he gave his spiritual descendants um, the earth. That's Romans 4.13. And um, we're in a, in a much bigger uh, war of Satan against uh, the people of God for the earth. And um, the earth to belong to the kingdom of God. And um, so there's always this opposition um, against the possession of God's heirs um, in Israel and also in the church. Val, good thoughts there. Um, Let's get a response here from Elizabeth. Yes, a really great point. And the great thing for us to remember as Christians is that in in every war there is a decisive battle that determines the outcome of the war. Uh, Analysts will tell you that uh, the Battle of El Alamein uh, in North Africa, the Battle of Stalingrad in in World War I, they were the key decisive pivotal battles that determined the outcome of the war. And the war rolled on um, and the chiefs knew that it was over but the people on the ground didn't. In fact, things get worse on the ground after that because there's more killing usually. There's more desperation. People make, you know, the generals make really desperate uh, orders. They do desperate things. And often things get worse after the decisive battle has already been won. And for us as Christians, the decisive battle was won on the cross Jesus Christ has won the victory already over sin and death. The devil has been defeated. And what he is doing now is just spinning out of control. He is essentially saying, if I'm going down, I'm going to take as many of you with me as I can. He is not going to to relent, but he, he has lost. And basically we are in a stage of what a military analyst would call mopping up. And what the church must do is we do not despair. We do not say, oh, it's so terrible. I don't want to look at it or I don't want to think about it. We have to get really, really busy with the business of the church. And the business of the church is mission and prayer. We have to, I think most people understand about mission being the business of the church but prayer is the business of the church too. And we should be really serious about the business of coming into the courts of the Lord day by day and in our congregations week by week, praying through these issues and not just thinking that that we have nothing to do with it or nothing to bring to it. Um, God works in this world through his church and in answer to prayer. And uh, we have a huge part to play in the, the kingdom coming uh, on earth. Thank you so much to Val in Mackay for a good contribution. And uh, we've got a line under any other calls. In fact, time has run short. And I know that there'll be a lot of people at a time like this, Elizabeth, looking for understanding of what's going on behind the scenes historically spiritually, biblically, and you've got some tremendous insights, especially when it comes to uh, all of the 
the bigger dimensions that come so far as persecution of Christian believers around the world. Uh, But I know that listeners certainly will be interested in your book After Saturday Comes Sunday, Understanding the Christian Crisis in the Middle East, uh, because that all has to do very much with the sorts of things that are playing out right now. Elizabeth Kendall is a religious liberty analyst and advocate for the persecuted church. You can connect with Elizabeth at elizabethkendall.com. Elizabeth Kendall, that's K-E-N-D-A-L dot com. And, uh, of course, Elizabeth, uh, you're also onto some other platforms too. Just uh, for, for, for listeners who want to connect with you and even a younger generation, uh, how are they going to connect with you? Um, I'm really not doing much on Instagram at the moment anymore. I'm just really str- I'm struggling to keep up with a few things. So the prayer bulletin is the main thing that I'm, I'm writing on. Um, but I, I re- and I do that because I really do believe in the power of prayer and the purpose of prayer, that God has ordained prayer as the way he works through the world. I think we underestimate the power of prayer to our peril. And you are an advocate for Australians taking up the challenge of praying internationally and for our issues at home as well. Elizabeth, you write about these things. You're an advocate for these things. No doubt you'd like a few more prayer supporters yourself and even perhaps a financial contribution or two as well wouldn't go astray if those who want to support you. ElizabethKendall.com Elizabeth, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us once again today on 2020. And thanks for having me, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.